0: Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios, and of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. Welcome to a special episode of The Path in the Practice. Today, I am speaking with Tonit Calloway, and Tonit is not an attorney at Foley and Lardner. She is the Executive Vice President, Chief Administrative Officer, General Counsel, and Secretary of Borg Warner Inc. Borg Warner is one of the largest automotive suppliers in the world with production facilities and technical systems at 96 sites in 24 countries worldwide with 50,000 employees. Normally, I try to give a somewhat detailed summary of my conversations with each guest, but not this time. I don't want to say too much as I think it's important for you to hear everything from Tanit herself in her own words. As you will soon hear, she's extremely candid and pulls no punches. But we do begin our discussion with Tonnet reflecting on growing up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, sharing her path to the University of Chicago Law School, and sharing a lot about the wins and losses she had on her journey to the C-suite. Also, as Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley, I had to get her to share her thoughts on diversity in the legal industry, as well as regarding diversity on corporate boards. Overall, this conversation is packed with insights and profound advice. It is truly a masterclass on the importance of taking complete ownership of your career and your life. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tana Calloway. Tana, welcome to the Path and the Practice. I'm so thrilled to have you here. As I was just telling you, you are our second special guest, but our first general counsel special guest. So let's just jump right Woo-hoo! in. And I'm going to, exactly. And I'm going to ask you if you could give your introduction.
1: Yeah, well, I hate this, but I will give the formal title, although I am not a formal title kind of person. But I am um, Executive Vice President, Chief Administrative Officer, General Counsel, and Secretary of Board of Warner. And I get—I guess I do a lot. <laughs> Actually, I have a team of people who do a lot. And so, in our group, we obviously have the legal department, but we also have government affairs, sustainability group is within that. We have uh, security, aviation, real estate, and facilities. So it's a big group.
0: Thank you so much for that. And for those who aren't familiar, Borg Warner is a very, very, very large. Automotive supplier, and we I think, and
1: yeah, we're getting bigger by the moment too. We just acquired Delphi, and as of Tuesday this week, we just announced the beginning of an acquisition of a German company. So we're just growing.
0: That is very exciting, and I think we may get into a little bit more of that as we get you know farther along in the show. And I appreciate you giving your official official intro because now we're going to talk a bit about how it is that you ended up being able to give that intro today. So let's start sort of at the beginning. So where are you from and where did you grow up?
1: Born and raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So, I mean, and, I, and I'll tell you a little bit about that because it's, it's interesting. And I think based on the times, it's probably relevant. I mean, it's definitely relevant. So like um, our vice president, I was bust. So I started though, my, my, let me start with my parents. My dad was a machinist at Faw Corporation. My mother was an educator at MPS schools, had two kids, believed education was the most important thing. So they actually, we went to Milwaukee, Montezori. We, went to, we started out in a private school. And then I spent two forgettable years at an MPS school. And I'm sorry about that, but I hated those two years. And then as part of the the 220 integration program, I attended junior high in Nualatosa. It was a really cool school, Hawthorne Junior High, which is now a senior living facility. But the building itself was absolutely cool. It had a park across the street, a steeple. It was a cool, cool school. And then in high school, I went to uh, Tulsa East. And so I was bused. I was technically bused, although I never, my parents drove me back and forth to school.
0: You're bringing back some words that I haven't heard in a long time, the 220 program. So as the listeners of the show know, I also grew up in the Milwaukee area. I grew up in the suburbs of Milwaukee. So Glendale, Wisconsin, and I very much remember the program because a lot of the black kids in my otherwise all-suburban white school were bused through this program called the 220 program, which in Milwaukee, they basically, I mean, I'm probably going to explain this wrong, but they had a deal where to, to integrate and diversify schools, they would bus kids from the city of Milwaukee to other schools. I mean, for a variety of reasons.
1: But not the other way that I recall. It was taking what they thought were poor, disadvantaged black kids and, and busing them out to the suburbs. And uh, well, for me, it was a, it was a great I mean, I, I can't say I don't like the experience, but I'll give you some highlights of about of how this city can be. So, you know, I'm, I'm in, and this was more me, this this first experience was more me because I've always been very strategic. So I'm in middle school and I played basketball as was guard. Now it's actually pretty good, but I knew I was going to go into high school at Tulsa East. And there I was one of, I think, the time and I couldn't get this number wrong, 13 blacks at that school, at the high school. And I told my dad, I said, one day I came home and I said, listen, I want to learn how to golf. And he this was before Tiger. So I'm really dating myself way, 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 way before Tiger. And he looked at me and he said, why do you want to golf? And I said, they are going to expect me to play basketball. And they're never going to see golf coming. And I ended up being, you know, eighth all conference one year and and captain of the girls golf team at Tulsa East. And my dad actually, when I said that to him, got a pro like the following week to start teaching me to golf. So that was just one experience. I'll tell you another one that's lived on in my life because you just never know when the world's going to go full circle. So I'm at Tulsa East. I'm a sophomore. They had a junior honors English class. And apparently the te- the, how you got into that class was a test you took either eighth or ninth grade. And I screwed that test up, you know? But otherwise, like almost straight A student at their school. And I'll never, ever forget this. So this, my mom, my mom is now no longer an educator. She's a principal in an MPS school. And my dad's still at Falk. And my mom said to the principal, we want her in that class. And they said, no, we don't think she can handle it. I'll never forget that. So they wrote a letter to my mom the vice principal, who I will not give his name, but it does come back, basically said in that letter that your daughter is an average student and she will never be able to make it. Now, the problem with this is he never looked at my file. Because if he had looked at my file, he would know I was almost a straight A student. And all of, I think in those days, it was called college prep courses. And my mom and dad took off work. And they sat in his office and she's, my mom said, she's going to be in that class. And by the way, tell me how you could write a letter like that about a student. You obviously don't know her. And he was scared to death and he put me in that class and I got an A in that class. And of course they all knew about it, but how this comes full circle. is fast forward. Oh my God. Let's see. Um, 20 plus years. I am in the hospital giving birth to my first child finishing a school deal because I was doing some public finance work at the time. And I was the client of that vice principal he was the superintendent of schools at the school district for which i was was doing the work, and he it was only later he learned that I finished that deal in in labor I was sort of you know I was given birth, I wasn't really in labor, but you just never know how life comes back after. yep, I
0: doubt you would have kept that letter and been like, remember this letter? I don't know if you remember this letter. Oh, no that me, you know.
1: I have that, <laughs> my parents have that letter that letter is somewhere in their house, oh, yeah.
0: Uh huh. Well, you've one, thank you so much for sharing that. Two, you've answered one of my next questions, which I often will ask people like, So, you know, what kind of kid were you growing up? And, and I have a sense now between what you said about golf and also just having to deal with some stuff and then probably proving people wrong. But also, like you said, he didn't even look into your files. So that was completely uninformed.
1: Yeah, but that wasn't the only part of me. I was also kind of an arrogant son of a gun. I used to wear a shirt in high school that said, so I started in high school freshman, it says Tanet the Great was the first year. I think the second year it went to greater and the third year was greatest. In those days, customizing your t shirts were really cool. And I used to do that. And people used to get annoyed by that. And now looking back, I can see why they were annoyed by it. It was that was pretty arrogant of me.
0: I think that's I think that's fantastic though. Hey, if you get if you don't believe, how are others going to believe? You gotta you gotta set the bar for us.
1: Yeah, yeah, but that could be annoying too. So I mean, I there were there were definitely other sides. I I was a trickster. I used to like to play tricks on people, and I got away with it because I was a good student. So I you know I didn't get in trouble like other people did because I was a good student, and plus my little short mom and and my dad came in there and already scared them, so they weren't going to do anything else to me.
0: Well, and then tell me about college and then law school. So where did you go to college and what was the thought behind that? And what was that process like for you?
1: Well, I got to give you a little bit of context on college because I would have done that differently. So I was fairly young. I had just turned 17 my senior year and my mother was the first of her family to graduate from, graduate from college. So for my parents, college was, wasn't even an option. It was a job. I needed to go there. And get through it they also didn't like planes and they thought anytime you go to college you go away and act silly and drink and act crazy and so they would not let me go away even though i had really great grades and so i went to university of wisconsin milwaukee which you know i thought the experience was great it was great for me i had um i did well it was fun i probably had my first set of failures there which is important because i wasn't actually going to be a lawyer i was all set to be a doctor and I had this really schizophrenic college curriculum just because I loved math. So I had math as long as it wasn't geometry. I loved literature, still love literature. I collect rare books, actually, from my favorite authors. And I loved economics. And I had all the science because I was a pre-med student. So I just had a really psycho course schedule. And, you know, so I was set to be a doctor. And then what happened? Organic chemistry kicked my butt. I couldn't get through organic chemistry to save my life. I audited. it. I just it was in in any any everyone knows that's the course that separates you.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say you're not the first person who's mentioned this before, but yes. Okay, so what did you do?
1: Well, my mom was funny because you know it was one of these things. The one the only bad grade I got in high school that stopped me from being like at the top top. I think I was a top five, but not. Is I got a C in geometry because I can't see 3D well even with glasses. So anything with that. Anything with molecules or drawing or I'm just not good at it. And organic chemistry was that. So she was supportive. She was just like, well, you know what? All right. You talk a lot. I, you should have been. A, I thought you should have been a lawyer to begin with. And so I didn't immediately get, get onto that. But I really focused on political science, which was ended up being my major. My minor was economics. And then I had all this other stuff also as part of it. And then I decided I was going to go to law school. And I will tell you what was another interesting part about Milwaukee, another interesting part about owning your life, owning your career, owning your dreams. I was in the honors program, really good grades. and really nailed the LSAT. So I was like in the top, at least top 10% then. And so I could go anywhere. And I'll never forget, I went into the counselor's office. The only time I went, and I don't even know where I went, I must've had to do it as a senior. And this counselor was trying to direct me to go to Minnesota and um, Wisconsin. Great school. So that's not an issue. But with my test scores and the grades, I could go anywhere I wanted to. And she wouldn't acknowledge it. And at one point I looked at her and I said, you know, I'm done here. I don't need you (laughs) for any kind of consultation. I know what I want to do. And she said, well, you know, you can get all these scholarships. And in fact, in Minnesota, they gave me full ride and a stipend and a job. And I mean, they did do everything and it's a great school. And I don't think I actually applied at Madison. But those are some amazing schools and, and it would have been great to go to them. There would have been, never been a problem. But for me, in my head, when I decided to go to law school, I was gonna go to a top five law school, period. And no one was gonna stop me. And, and it wasn't just a counselor I had to fight. I had to fight my parents who, again, didn't believe in traveling. They were a little worried about the cost. And I just told him. I said, "I'm going." Now they did sabotage me a little bit because when the University of Chicago app came, they practically filled that out for me.
0: <laughs> Here, fill uh, out this one, honey. Yes, <laughs> yes. And
1: and and I and I and I have to tell you for all my talk about now at the time, University of Chicago was a top. It was top. It was three. It was Yale, Harvard, University of Chicago, and I think Michigan was under that because I applied to Michigan, and I always rub my note, my husband's nose in it because he went to uh, Michigan. And so University of Chicago was great, but I'll tell you how people can influence you. The reason I went to University of Chicago, because the fit wasn't obvious. I mean, I am not an academic in any, I'm like, tell it to me straight, tell it to me like I'm a four-year-old and tell it to me quick and be practical about it. And that's not University of Chicago. But I was also afraid. I had never really been away from home. I was fairly young because I went, you know, I, as I said, I started college at 17 And I was afraid. And so I didn't go to Harvard. I didn't go for it. I mean, I did. I did do the top five thing, but I certainly didn't go away from home, really far away from home. And it was because of that fear. And that's one of the things I regret. And now having said I regret it, did it work out well? Because I have found in my life going to the place you least think you should be there sometimes gives you the most value. But that is how I, I ended up at, at University of Chicago.
0: You said so many things, but two things that just really stuck out to me that you just said. The, the quick comment, but important comment about owning your life, owning, owning your career, owning your future. I just, I hope that lands with, I really hope that lands with people because what I'm hearing from you is, and I think people know this, but let's just, you know, let's just really hit it home. It's great to get advice from other people. But, at the end of the day, you know what you want to do. You know what you're interested in. And you know, and for a lot of people, the advice of the counselor, they're going to be like, "Well, my counselor said." And it can also be really hard with parent dynamics. I'm not going to be the one to say, you know, don't listen to your parents. But I do think, you know, you're, I, you're like, I became an adult and had to push as to what I knew it was was good for me. And I just think that's so important because also the point of this show is to hear that you generally know what you want to do, but that doesn't mean you know what your exact path is going to be. And I think as we talk more about your career, we're going to see how that unfolds. But it's just powerful to hear because, as you know, people look at you now general counsel, you know, top of your your game in a lot of ways. And they're like, she must have known the answers from day one. She must have been known since she was four years old.
1: Really, what I wanted to do was be an actress. And my parents, when they were like, no, you got to make some money. But it's interesting how, especially for the African-American community, as the generations get wealthier, how things change. So my daughter actually is an actress in New York City and not worried about anything at all. And in fact, my dad, who is the very person who, and my mom who told me I couldn't do it, gave her a huge financial gift when she graduated from college to say, you know what, you just focus on this, right? But it's about wealth creation, particularly in the African-American community. You know, when you have the first generation to go to college, I was the second. And now we've got a couple more that have gone. But, you know, for some of these careers, you know, it's just not an option.
0: Nope, absolutely. there's so many other things that influence your decisions for me. So my mom went to law school and my grandmother, I think both, I have, I have a, a grandparents who went to college, but not all four of them. And so generationally, maybe a little bit farther along, but you can definitely see just the differences. And also we could do a whole different podcast about how parents will switch their tone with you versus their grandkids. Their grandkids, so the grandkids yeah,
1: their grandkids <laughs> could do no wrong. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely.
0: Well, so tell me about, you go to Chicago. Did you know what you wanted to do as a lawyer once you were there? What What was that like?
1: Yeah, I absolutely did know I wanted to be a securities lawyer. My dad was pretty progressive in some ways. My mom, you know, it was a a dual career family. And when my mom had me, for some reason, they both decided she should stay home. That lasted, I'm not sure, that lasted a year. And they were both looking at each other like, you need to go. And so my dad switched shifts at Falk and went to third shift. And so he watched us during the day. And one of the things he had us do was chart, buy stock and kind of graph it. So I when when I decided to go to law school, I knew it was going to be corporate securities without a doubt. Wow!
0: So that seed was planted really early. I don't know what I thought you were going to say, but I am surprised you said that because a lot of people, as you know, they go to law school and they're like, "I kind of know what lawyers do." I more so knew what litigators did because that's what you see in the world, and also law schools more focused on litigators. So that is awesome that you that you knew about that side of things. So. That, then what happens? You go to law school and, and what happens after?
1: I got my second failure, which uh, second big failure. I mean, I feel I'm always screwed up, but second big failure and I got my first D like for real D. Now I would have gotten a D in organic or F in organic chemistry, but I, I dropped it and started auditing it. But I got my for real D in University of Chicago. And I remember calling home and being all upset about it. And my mom's just looked at me and she, well, she was, it was on the phone and she just paused and she said, so what you going to do about it? That, that was it. There was no coddling. Thing. And, and I will tell you, I got it together, but I wasn't the best student at University of Chicago. There were a couple of things. Not only did I realize things had always come fairly easy to me, except for organic chemistry. And I forgot what class I got the D in, actually. But just generally at University of Chicago, I wasn't like the top of the class. So I realized there a couple of big, really key things. One, I'm not the smartest person in the room. Two, I don't need to be to be successful because as, as I was watching all this unfold, I'm watching people with no common sense getting mugged in this area because at the time, University of Chicago still was challenged around its fringes. And I'm navigating through it and I'm learning how, okay, so I'm not going to be the top of the class. But you know what? It's okay. And then when it got to seminars and it was corporate and it was securities, those classes that I really, I was knocking those out of the park. So it was a valuable lesson for me that I, I I take, there are a ton of people smarter than I am, a ton. And I, I make it a point to try and hire those people, actually. So, and I'm okay with that. There is nothing, I am I'm actually should have a badge on my forehead that says, not the smartest and proud of it.
0: But that's also another powerful thing. But as you said, that doesn't mean I can't be successful. And I mentioned before we started, we have law students starting to listen. And I'm certain there's some law students who probably just came off of a not so great first semester law school during a pandemic and chances are hearing your words right now will mean a lot to them. So I hope, I hope what you said really landed and it's and it's powerful to be self-aware and to acknowledge that. And like you said, to surround yourself with some of the smartest people to hire those folks.
1: Well, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be very honest with you. Anyone you hear tell you their career was just, they just were nailing it. I wouldn't listen to them. I don't know if it's true. Now, maybe they're special and they're gifted in a way most mortal humans aren't. But um, what I have found is there's a lot of expectation you get to this level and, and then you, you sugarcoat everything. I'm the opposite. I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. I worked hard for all my failures. I'm going to own them.
0: <laughs> that's what, and you worked hard for those failures. Yes. And you learn from them and you move on, but that's that's exactly right. And that's the thing. I think when you ask people about their journeys, most are going to be honest. They're going to highlight failures. They're going to highlight where they learn. They own it because it's a part of their journey. But for some reason, we've been taught that we're all supposed to be perfect. We're supposed to become born with the endowed with the knowledge of the universe. And you're just supposed to know, and things are supposed to go perfect. And you're supposed to walk off into the sunset and retire. Credits roll. Life's perfect. <laughs> no. So what, ha- what happens after law school? What do you do next?
1: Oh, so oh, well, here's another example of being afraid. So I'm at university, you know, obviously I'm at, the, at ULC. These were the days where you could still get a clerkship easily. This wasn't like, you know, you go into a top school, you get a clerkship fairly easily. And I wanted to go to New York and I actually scared myself out of going to New York, which I have really regretted, you know, because there's a sense that at least if you're going to do securities and financial work, those are the, where the big boys play the big deals. And I didn't do that. And so that, and it was fear. I'm just going to be honest. It was fear. That's why I didn't apply. That's why, because I'm like, okay, then how do I live for the summer? Who am I going to live with? I have a germ thing. I don't want roommates. I gave myself a ton of reasons why I shouldn't do it. So I stayed in town for clerkship, ended up at a local firm, my first job, and got fired from that. <laughs> Or as they might really want to call it a mutual agreement, but it, it was not successful. Let's put it that way.
0: Parted ways. You parted ways you from
1: that. You parted ways. <laughs> and, I, and for everyone listening, and this is the one thing I would say about it, I don't think that was all my fault, but I do think a lot of it was. I was not a great lawyer. And I probably can't swear on this podcast, but but you know when I say not a great lawyer, there's a really good word that starts with a S S that actually would, would m- more... Able to describe what kind of lawyer I was then. I w- didn't pay attention to detail. I, you know, it wasn't. Now, did I work for a great leader? No, by n- no means would I say that. But, you know, at some point you got to look in the mirror and you got to own your stuff. And that is a true statement. My intention in detail was crazy. I have always, with things coming fairly easy, except for a couple of exceptions and being fairly strategic, the details I had not had the discipline to focus in on. Frankly, I developed that discipline, but it, it took a lot of failure for for me to do it.
0: So then, what happens? You part ways with them. Then where
1: do you go? I did get a job in another um, local firm. Same thing too in the in the beginning, and then the light came on, and I got it together about the the details. But at the same time, I was getting it together. I was also getting courted to come in house at Harley Davidson, and then I went to Harley Davidson, and and that is probably one of the best decisions I made. That was probably one that most people would not have made because, you know, most people have this idea, especially that young that you need all the experience in the law firm. But I I will tell you another thing about me that I am naturally wired. I am very, very, very risk tolerant as a GC and just a lawyer in general. So I tend to hire people who are risk averse more so than I am. I mean, abnormally so. Especially in legal. That's a
0: rare trait in a lot of lawyers, right? Because, yeah.
1: In my mind... There are very few things that we can't accomplish. I, I do a lot of work with Pat Quick at Foley, and, and I'm sure he'll tell you that. I mean, I'm not one to say, I'm pushing the envelope every which way I can. I will sometimes out, I'll push that envelope further than my business folks. Now, that's not to say I'm going to jeopardize an enterprise. I mean, you know, that's not what I'm saying. You don't, you know, you comply with all laws. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying from a business perspective, I push envelopes, and because of that, I'm, I'm you know I'm not viewed as as even the general counsel really. I'm brought into these c- discussions for my perspective on the business. And I'll tell you, I don't know how many of your listeners went to see Hamilton, but the, one of the best songs in there is "I Want to Be in the Room Where It Happens." And I have to tell you, for me, especially when I uh, uh, you know at Borg Warner, I'm in the room where it happens, and there's no bigger compliment. It's not about a raise. It's not about a attaboy. It's that is where the compliment happens, you know, and I'm the only woman and certainly the only person of color in that room and they are listening. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, there's a couple things you said. So I've never, never been in house. I practiced for about eight years and I was a legal recruiter. So I helped people then find jobs in house and with law firms. So I've done a fair amount of work in terms of learning from those that are in-house so that I could help people go in-house but what as you were talking I was like you sound more like a quote unquote business person right because the lawyers have the stereotype of being the like risk averse well I don't and the business folks are like we need to make a decision we need to do things and every general counsel that I've heard from over the past 15 years or so has said something like you know I'm a strategic advisor I'm a part of the business I'm C-suite level yeah I'm called the lawyer too but my mindset has had to change a bit. And also I wanted to ask you in that transition to Harley-Davidson, which we're not going to pack 18 years at Harley. You know, we can't can't do that year by year. But I imagine that's where you met Pat Quick. And so I don't know if you want to say a few words about the connection. So for the listeners, the reason I was even fortunate enough to get Tana on the show is because I met her through Pat Quick, who's a senior corporate partner at Foley. We had a conversation. It was related to diversity, which we'll talk a bit about soon. But something you talked about was just how helpful Pat has been in your career. So I'd love if you could share a little bit about that or reflect on that.
1: Oh my God. I got to talk nice about him.
0: If just, I mean, it's only being recorded and other people will only hear it. But if, so if you wouldn't mind.
1: <laughs> well, let me, let me preface. There, there's a probably a better, bigger story too, besides just Pat. Like here, you know, people like you, when you started this and, and people who look at me think, you know, I've got the big job. I do have the big job, but I didn't get the big job on my own. I mean, I had a ton of luck. Obviously, I had to be good and I had to develop those skills. That's the ticket to entry. Just so people know, being good and technically good is just a ticket to entry. Then there's a whole bunch of other stuff that falls in, into place or not. And some, a lot of it has to do with who you choose to partner with. And then when I say partner, I don't mean, even mean it in a business standpoint. I mean, who are your friends? And who are the people that you trust? And who are the people that you would go to war with, fight with? And Pat is one of those people. I mean, all through the years, we have worked together. I don't think there's a point in time that we haven't worked. And when I went into Board Warner, I came in as the chief human resource officer. And I didn't have any right to, but I hired Pat to be the disclosure counsel there. There was a general counsel. But I was slowly doing more and more of the legal work, and I hired Pat there. And there's a couple of reasons. One, his lawyering skills are impeccable. There's just no doubt about it. I mean, the only problem that man, that man will find a place to put a comma and I, I and any, I don't, I, can, I don't even know. He is a comma nut, but he is, he's brilliant. I mean, honestly, he's just brilliant. And he's a nice man. There are a lot of brilliant people I would never work with. I just fired some counsel on a deal. Because I'm sure they're brilliant, but they weren't doing what I needed them to do. The other thing, Pat and I have a nice synergy, meaning I am the crazy one. I will go for it. I'm looking for off-market provisions. I don't care if something is precedent. To me, precedent only happens because someone challenged the status quo. Then a new precedent started. And I'm the challenger. I don't like status quo. That's not my thing. I'm always looking for the next best deal I can get all for the benefit of of the company, you know? And and Pat is not, he's a reasonable voice in the background when I'm too off track. But he's also the cheerleader when let's go for it. Or there are times when I push for the big thing and I don't care about something else. And he's like, no, care about that. You know, and having that kind of partnership is incredible. And he hears me. You know, there are, are people, you can hire lawyers and they don't always hear you. He hears me. Now, we are friends. I'm not going to sit here and lie on this podcast and say this is just a business relationship. It is not. It is more than that. But we also hold each other accountable. I mean, really hold each other accountable. You know, when I told Pat, listen, the diversity thing has got to be a bigger deal. I need people of color on our projects. Meaningfully. He listened. And I've had a number of people that in my life like that. I've been very fortunate about that. The reason I even got into the C-suite is Keith Wandell promoted me at Harley Davidson without, and knowing I had no HR experience. What he wanted was someone who was a business person. And he said he could teach me the other stuff. And, you know, he wanted a complete transformation of the uh, HR group. He is still a huge mentor. I still keep in touch with Keith. Um, so I've had, I've been very fortunate to, to have people like that in my life. And, and the other part of that is you value the relationships.
0: Well, and I also have an ulterior motive for asking about Pat, which is I also want to get him on this show. And I think you talking about him just now is almost like he, he has to come on now, doesn't he? I think he has to. So we look forward to that happening in the coming weeks or months, but no, I really appreciate you, you reflecting on that. And I asked, I actually think it's a little bit of a segue for us into talking about diversity and legal and what you said about the status quo and precedent and i often cuz i have people ask me a lot like alexis you do dni at a law firm what is with large law firms what do we have to do to fix this problem and i think both you and i have some really strong ideas as to what we could do but sometimes i will tell people i think part of our issue in legal and large law firms is this risk averse, precedent based? And there's this really funny um, cartoon I shared once on LinkedIn that was depicting a, a, a law firm and someone being like, "I have this new innovative idea," and then the person standing and is the CEO of the law firm was like, "Great, how many other people have done it before?" Because we tend not to like to do things that nobody's done before. And I often joke it's because of this presidential nature of legal practice. We're we're loath to change, and so wh- I don't even know where we should dive in with that. I know you have some opinions, but like, what do you need, want your outside counsel? What do you want people to know about your expectations for diversity and inclusion as, you know, as their client?
1: Well, I will take work away if it's not, if, if we're not getting the diversity on our files that we want. And it's not just putting a brown face in a meeting. The brown face better speak or the female lawyer needs to be able to speak, have an opinion, have a perspective and get some billing. You know, we are asking that question, who's getting the billing? Now, firms can choose not to tell us and I can choose not to keep giving them work. There's a couple of things here. So now I might say something that's controversial. There's a two-way street here. One, you guys have just got to provide diverse talent. You just have to. And for all the uptight, oh boy partners out there who think I'm full of shit, well, guess what? I control probably $50, billion, $50 million worth Of money, and I'm more than happy to take it somewhere else. And here's the other piece of this that's controversial. Me being a Black woman in this position, if I am not taking this stance, shame on me. Shame on me. I mean it. And what I love is I have a team of people who mean it just as much. And so now we've sent out letters, you know that. We've sent out letters to our firms that we find important talking about our commitment to diversity and expecting theirs. And at the end of the year, I will decide who I'm going to continue to work with and who I'm not. And I have to tell you, I just fired a firm and very professorial Caucasian male trying to tell me what to do. And I'm like, well, you know what? You don't have to tell me anything. And hired another firm. We talked about diversity in the room with an opinion diverse group of people. It wasn't enough. No. But, you know, fortunately there's a flow right now. The waves are f- flowing towards this issue and it's becoming much more something that's not going away. And I love the GC at Coke who basically said, if you're not going to do it, we're going to cut fees by 30%. I mean, and he, he's a person of color and he's saying that, and obviously he's got the backing of his board. My CEO knows what I'm doing and knows the letters that went out and I've, got their backing. And here's the other thing for when you decide how you fill those roles. The days we're saying you can't find people, those are over. They never really existed to begin with, but people like to say that. But they're over. And I'll tell you, I hold myself to the same status. I mean, I get in trouble because I just hire people. If I find a talent, I hire a talent. I take chances. We just hired someone straight out of school. So you just got to do that. You know, you see a great person of color or a female lawyer, or, you know, I do this with everyone, but particular focus on people of color and, and women. You know, I'm trying to s- steal them away from someone. If I happen to be on LinkedIn and I see someone who's great, I call them up and I talk them in the scene if they want to come. I had an open spot for my chief IP lawyer and I was on LinkedIn, saw this woman and looked incredible. And I called her. She didn't end up getting a job, but I, we're staying in touch and she's incredible.
0: Well, I'm so glad you brought up Coca-Cola and Bradley, Gate and their general counsel. So we're recording this in February 2021. And I would say it was maybe two, three weeks ago that Coke very publicly released those outside counsel guidelines. So anybody curious, if you Google it, you'll find it. There's an open letter on LinkedIn. So as you know, you're very much in good company. And actually, so for me, what got me into this line of work was in large law firms was my transition from being a recruiter to this was I was giving a presentation on recruiting and retaining millennial attorneys of color at a large conference a number of years ago. And my first slide was There is no pipeline problem. We've just artificially narrowed the pipeline. It's sort of like you're breathing through a straw and I'm like, let's take the straw out of your mouth. There's lots of people around. And so I think and I think this year and all the you know new racial justice movement, whatever you want to call it, inequality that we're now collectively more aware of, it shows how we've narrowed the pipeline and how recruiting at a handful of elite institutions and saying that they're a proxy for greatness, that's not okay. We know they're not a proxy for greatness. they're a proxy for who knew to apply to certain schools. and of course, you know yeah, there are people of color who go to the top 10 law schools, but there's plenty of great people who don't. And we should be considering them in the profession. And there's there's so much more we could say about this. I don't know if you have any more remarks about it before I, I switch gears a little bit. But it's a big topic.
1: I'm kind of the view. Just do it now. Now, and you don't ever have to suffer for quality. That's not the issue. So you know, you know, in the back of your minds, when you just said all that, somebody saying, "Well, you know, the quality," and that's not like, "Well, that's not true." It's just not true. I'm gonna be honest. Some of the schools, the top schools, in particular, University of Chicago, great schools, but I. Don't always fit in with the lawyers that come out of there because I am like, tell it to me like I'm a four year old. I do not want a thesis on this. This is taking too long. I need it done and now. And it may be brilliant. It may be the most brilliant piece of work I will have ever read. But if I have to wait too long or if it's twenty pages, that's not going to help me.
0: Yep. Yeah. You're like put it in a couple sentences. What's the bottom line? Well, it reminds me, and I'm I'm sure you're familiar with him, Wharton Bellamy. He a couple years ago was saying to me, "Prove to me the benefit of homogeneity." Prove to me the benefit of not having. So he's like, we're always talking about, you know, and yeah, there's the business case, the moral case, but prove to me how you are benefiting by having a homogeneous workforce. And he's like, you, you can't. We don't, we don't need to talk about it. Let's just fix it. Like you said, let's just fix it. Well, and as we are winding down, a couple other things I wanted to quickly hit on. I know you're on a couple of different boards. And also, this issue of diversity inclusion is something that's been talked a lot about within corporate boards. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. If it's sort of the, if it's the same, or even any broader thoughts on someone being who's one day interested in being on a board one day.
1: You no, know, now this is going to be totally out of right left field. Here's the thing: just be really good. If you are in house somewhere, you got to get to the C suite. And anyone who tells you you're in a sweet C-suite and you got to go take these classes, particularly women, I will tell you, it has become a moneymaker to have all these what I, I consider fake classes for C-suite women or people of color to learn how to be a board member. If you're on a C-suite, you know how to be a board member. It's the opposite of what you do when you're at your board. It's the opposite. You see it. All the behaviors you don't like that a board member sal- demonstrates, you don't do it when you're on the board. You know, you're not managing the company. You've got to be, it's, this is not that hard, but what has happened is we have hypnotized women and people of color that they got to do all this training. I don't know one white man who's been on a board that has trained to do any of that. They get put on a board because they know somebody. That is what happens. Um, in my case, that is what happened. I can't, and now in one case, that's what's hap- what happened. In the other case, this is about owning your career. At Born Warner, I said after a year and I, if I nail it, I want to be put on a public company board and I know an organization, you pay them and it was, it's a pretty hefty fee, but you know, if, as my development, I want to be on that. I want you to do it and put me on a public company board and they did it, but I also delivered.
0: Mm-hmm. The ask is really important too. You, you. The ask of what you just said, the, here's what I want to happen.
1: But, you know, people ask all the time, right, versus saying, this is what I want, and I mean it. And then be willing to leave if they don't give it to you. I mean, at the point of time when I got over to Warner, I had a reputation of being a fixer. And I do pay attention to detail. I learned how to fix that problem, too. But my overall reputation was being a little bit of a fixer for anything that, when there's a problem. And they brought me a Warner because they had a no vote on their executive comp pay. And I know how to fix that. And if you know what you are, then you can own what you want. Mm, That's
0: powerful right there. If you know what you are, then you can own what you want. I'm tempted to just stop the show right there. We're not going to, we're going to keep going, but that is good right there. (laughs) Oh my goodness. In that same vein, as we are winding down, what is your general advice? You've given so much. So, not that you haven't provided a ton, but I love to stop. I love to end the show on the general advice about, so for this, You know, whether it be general advice to lawyers or general advice about, you know, everything you've been saying, owning your career. What are your thoughts, particularly to the to the younger lawyers? Because a lot of our listeners are are more are junior.
1: So I'm not gonna say the stuff everyone says because you guys know you gotta be good, right? I will say this, you do need to know who you are. And you have to own that and you have to build some kind of brand around it. And I'm not saying people say that build a brand and it's become pretty colloquial too. Well, here's what I'm saying. I don't fit everywhere. There are many companies that I don't fit and I will never interview at. And if they even come to me, I know not to go. And I'm not going to go into that company and change the culture. So anyone who thinks that, you're wrong. And whatever happens when you get there, if you decide, that's your fault. That is not the company's fault. So that's knowing who you are and knowing I am loud. I am colloquial. I only am formal at board meetings. That's the only time you'll get me formal. or if I'm in a deal. I also work for. My boss believes in me and he lets me go. I mean, we have a thing that we say when I'm in the middle of a deal and things are getting heated and he's like, all right, just unleash the Kraken. And that's me going off full tonnet. But it's not going full tonnet disrespectfully. It's not going to full tonnet without knowing the business reasons I'm doing it and what I'm trying to accomplish. But I'm not going to take anything from anyone. And, this, and one of our transactions, one of the leaders on the other side, I mean, we went at it. And it's become a running joke. And my boss supported me. Knowing that you have support, that kind of support in a job is really critical. And sometimes it's knowing when you take that and leverage it to the best. And when someone else, another offer comes, figuring out what is it you're trying to accomplish too, because you're not going to get that kind of leeway everywhere. On the other hand, I came to Board Warner when I first came to Board Warner. I didn't ask any of the questions people ask. I did not care about the culture. I didn't care about diversity. What I cared about it was was it was an automotive company. And my mentor had said, Keith said, if you want to be a good business person, work in automotive because the margins are so tight and you're always working. So I cared about that. I also knew I had spent my whole career in Milwaukee. And if I wanted to be a really good corporate lawyer, I needed to work at a company that has mergers, they have acquisitions, they have divestitures, they're global, really global, like really get out. Get into a factory in another country, which I did. I needed that to round my portfolio out. So it wasn't about culture; it wasn't about happiness. I just knew I needed two to three years at that company to round out my portfolio, and that's all I care. I could suck up bad culture, knowing that. But it was a strategy. It was based on what I wanted to accomplish. Now it turned out not that way. It turned out they sucked me right on in because it's a great company, and I and I love it. And we've done we're doing some really cool things. But, you know, for me and my age and where I am in my career, the next thing is, what do you want to do? Do you want to be a CEO? Do you want to do that? I mean, people have talked to me about that. And I have to tell you, I'm, it's not as easy an answer as it would have been four years ago. Because now, you know, I'm in the room where it happens. You know, I'm one of the top officers. I'm one of the most powerful officers. I have a great team. I mean, I've got an amazing team. I mean, my success is really theirs because I do not micromanage them. I don't look at everything they do. These, This group of people of my leadership team who are lawyers, because I have some leaders that are not lawyers. any one of them could take my job. And I'm proud of that. I'm not insecure. I'm not worried about it. I mean, goodie for them. And if I had any small part in that, that makes me really happy, actually. So, I mean, my advice is be yourself. You're not going to change a company for you, to you. Know what you want. So really know what you want. What do you need in your career? And don't, the one thing I, that bothers me more than anything is when an employee comes up to me and tells me, what do I need to do? Now, I'm probably meaner than most on that, but I mean, my God, you're a professional. You're at a higher level and you're asking me what you need to do. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes they know it. They just want you to give them permission. You know, that already, I'm going to tell you, that turns me off. And I'm actually thinking completely different about that person. So know what you want. Know what career, career aspirations you have. And I'll tell you the other thing. Stop talking about that damn career ladder. That is really off the chart because so many people believe in that. But if I had believed in a career ladder, I would never have made it where I am. Because I had to take a detour, a detour for which I had no experience in. And I had to just trust in myself that I was gonna make it happen. So when I got promoted as a VP of HR, you know, people ask me all the time, you had no experience. What were you thinking? I'm like, well, for 24 hours I was in terror. And then I realized, you know, it's a shot. It's a shot. And if I screwed it up, at least I had my shot. And so you know, for me, the biggest thing is you gotta own your career. Nobody is gonna own it for you. No one. And your next steps, where those steps are, be open to challenges and opportunities that you didn't expect. Because a lot of times those are the opportunities that will build you up. And then give something back because, you know, one of the, my joys is seeing the leadership team and then a couple levels beneath me flourish and grow and do their own thing. Hell, they'll argue with me all the time. And that's success to me when you have a team that's arguing with me. And I should lose all those battles, actually, because then I know it's working.
0: Well, thank you so much, Tana. That is all incredibly powerful advice. The overall takeaway, own your career, know yourself, have a plan, but be prepared to, you know, take a different path if it comes up. And I just can't thank you enough for being on the show today.
1: Oh, well, thank you for having me.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Tana.
1: You're welcome. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review, as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner, LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.